Well, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you hearty Michiganders. Uh, those of you here with me in the sanctuary and those of you joining us via video feed from Knox Hall and the higher than usual number of people worshiping online and uh, listening by radio, uh, good morning to you as well. Starting today, our online guests have the option of watching the sanctuary service or the Knox Hall service. Uh, in the past, we've only been able to live stream the room that had the cameras, which uh, rotate based on where the live speaker is, uh, which is just fine for the occasional online uh, visitor. But for the long-term homebound, uh, they prefer to join their own worshiping community on a weekly basis. And for the first-time visitor to our uh, online experience, who's not part of our church, they want to see our church as we really are, which is dual venue. So starting today on the website and on the app, uh, you'll be able to click to enter the sanctuary or click here to enter Knox Hall, just the way they would if they were actually in our building. And we hope this uh, small step will make worship more accessible and will better represent uh, this unique aspect of the worshiping life of our church. And the equipment needed to make that possible was all provided through the Thanksgiving offering. So I want to thank you very much for your gifts to that. We are working our way through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And we're in this section of teaching where Jesus is talking about what it means to be good. Not just good on the surface, not just good in the eyes of other people, but good to the core. Good from the inside out. And today's topic is a little sensitive, and it's the kind of thing we don't often talk about in church, so I'd like to ease our way into this morning's topic by talking about fishing. <laughs> I'm not much of a fisherman, but I have been told to catch a fish, you must think like a fish, which turns out is not actually that hard, because fish, uh, it turns out, don't actually think that much. Fish are solely guided by their appetites. Fish life is about the maximum gratification of appetite with the minimum expenditure of energy. Right? They want to eat, and they want it easy. And that's the totality of fish thought life. A rainbow trout never really reflects on the direction of his life. And a girl carp never turns to a boy carp and says, I think we need to define this relationship. Uh, fish don't define that much, it turns out. They're just a collection of their appetites. And they're very easy to trap and to catch. I was kind of struck about how dumb fish actually are. Uh, they, they will bite into lures that don't look anything like real food. They will bite into lures even though there is clearly a barbed hook visibly running right through it. Uh, and fish have been falling for this for years. You would think fish would wise up. You would think fish would notice there's a long string attached to that lure. Uh, you would think they would contemplate the fate of their friends who bit at these lures and then went zipping off into space, never to return. You would think that older fish would sit down with younger fish and say, don't bite everything that grabs your interest. That older fish would say, I don't want to alarm you, but I have seen some things. And we wouldn't want to happen to you what happened to Uncle Charlie. But fish never seem to learn. Uh, they spend their whole lives in schools, but they never learn. And thank you. 
Yeah, aren't you glad that people aren't like that? Aren't you glad that people are so much smarter than fish, that people don't fall for the same old traps and, the, and the, that catch people generation after generation repeatedly through the ages? Anybody know where I'm going with this? A promising politician who made his name partly because of his tough stand on prostitution has to resign his position and his future because it turns out that he was a client of the same organizations he was trying to bust. A movie professional with a long successful career stands accused for sexual harassment, assault, and rape. A female teacher loses her job and her family when it's discovered that she has been exchanging nude photos with a student. A pastor who becomes known for his preaching against sexual sin is discovered to have been leading a double life one of them guided solely by appetite. A wife spends years in a loveless marriage. She thinks of herself as a victim until she gets involved in an emotional attachment with a man who's not her husband and it tears the family apart. A husband with sexual addiction lives in years in secret guilt and feels like he can never be close to God and can never be fully known by his wife. These stories are all true, and you're not sure exactly who I'm talking about because we hear these kinds of stories all the time. Some people really have problems when it comes to this stuff, don't they? And aren't you glad that you and I don't? Aren't you glad that you and I are part of the normal people? This is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. If we read the Sermon on the Mount correctly, you will never again be able to point your finger at the bad people and take pride in how good and normal you are. We tend to put people into two groups of people. There are people who have problems, and then there's people like me, normal people. But Jesus seemed to see the two groups were people who have problems and know it, and people who have problems and don't know it. Jesus always levels the playing field. And Jesus, in this section of his great sermon, is trying to help people see what real righteousness looks like, and it does not look like the righteousness of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Jesus is moving us past superficial definitions to the kind of goodness that flows from a good heart. Our text today is from Matthew's Gospel. We're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, and this is our main scripture text of the day. So if you wouldn't mind, may I ask you to stand again if you're in a place where you're able to do so. These are uh, the words of Jesus, and we stand in respect. In fact, let's, let's read these words aloud together. It's a short enough passage. We can do that together wherever you are. Would you read these aloud uh, with me in unison? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. These are confusing words. These are noble words. These are the words of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you for Jesus. He is our Redeemer, 
and he is the wisest teacher who ever taught. Open his wisdom to us once more. Help us to cut through time and culture to understand and receive these words as the first hearers did. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, the question of the day is this. Who is a good person when it comes to sexuality? And in our day, a common thought might be someone who honors consent. That's sexual goodness, honor, consent. If two adult people consent, that's all that matters, our culture would say. And while we would all agree that consent must never be violated, ever, consent as an ethic doesn't go far enough. It is possible for two consenting adults to still be outside God's will, to still cause pain, to still become trapped, to still be broken. Consent is foundationally important, but it doesn't say all that needs to be said about sexual sin or about sexual health and wholeness. In fact, if someone is dealing with addiction or past trauma or brokenness or is motivated by guilt or pressure or an unhealthy need to please, is consent even actually consent, psychologists wonder. We need an, a higher ethic. In Jesus' day, the primary sexual ethic was do not commit adultery. That was the baseline principle spelled out in the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery, which means quite literally, if you are married, you may not have sexual intimacy with someone who is not your spouse. It's wrong. It's always wrong. And some of you know the pain of that betrayal. Now again, you might assume that adultery is commonly and universally understood as wrong, but in the ancient world, it actually needed to be spelled out, and that's why it's included in the law of Moses. But don't commit adultery was never intended to be the totality of sexual ethics. It's merely a starting point in a culture that had gone mad. It's a baseline. It's an important, inviolable rule, but it doesn't say all that needs to be said. It's possible for a married person to never commit physical adultery, but still be outside God's will. There are violations of the heart and the eyes and the attitudes and relationship. Someone can honor the seventh commandment and still be trapped in addiction or unloving to their spouse or selfish in their relationship. And Jesus recognized that some people were using this basic law of Moses, thou shalt not commit adultery, as their definition of goodness. And they were thinking, well, adulterers are bad. I have never personally committed the physical act of adultery, therefore I am good. And they would feel all smug and quite superior, even though they were still broken, as we all are, even though it still affected their sexuality, as it always does, and even though they still needed God, which we all do. And Jesus wants to get behind the issue and underneath the surface, so he does one of his statements of, you've heard it said, but I say. And he goes through a series of these phrases, you've heard it said, but I say, right here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And today we read that he said, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say anyone who lusts after someone 
has already committed adultery in their hearts. Now let's talk about what Jesus it does not mean by this, what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to find someone attractive or desirable. That's part of what it means to be human. That is the way God wired us. God designed sexuality to be a continuing source of mystery and wonder and joy for the human race. The word here that's translated lust is the word epiphamaho, which means mismanaged or mishandled or misdirected sexual desire or fantasy or intent. Mismanaged, mishandled, or misdirected sexual desire, fantasy, or intent. In other words, it's something that everybody has done. Jesus also is not saying here that if you've done adultery in your heart, you might as well go ahead and do it physically because one's just as bad as the other. Jesus is not saying that one is bad as the other. Physical adultery is everything that's wrong with emotional adultery plus, plus deceit and betrayal and the breaking of a promise, damage to a family, deep hurt to a spouse. Jesus' point here is if you think that you are sexually perfect and need no repentance because you have managed to avoid the physical act of adultery, you'd better think again because this is much broader than that. And so I'd like to um, uh, do a quick mass confession of sexual fallenness right here in church. This might be uncomfortable for you, but I'm going to read a, a series of categories. And at the end of this, if, if, if you relate to these, if this is you, I want you to raise your hand so everybody in church can see. And some of you are wishing that you were worshiping online this morning. <laughs> okay, we'll see how this goes. Mass confession. If you've ever committed a sexual sin, if you've ever looked at someone or something you should not have looked at, if you've ever flirted with somebody you should not have flirted with, if you've ever given somebody the look, if you've ever intentionally tried to attract the look, if you've ever withheld yourself sexually from your spouse, if you've ever been wounded by feeling unattractive, if you've ever failed to talk to your kids helpfully about sexuality, if you've ever had a single regret, if you at any moment thought you could use help from God in your, this area of sexuality, would you please raise your hand? Okay, thank you. You put your hand down. Now, for the sake of clarity, everybody else, please raise your hand. Yeah. Jesus is talking about something far deeper than the ethic of consent. Sexual intimacy is God's invention to unite two souls. That's why this is so powerful. That's why this is so dangerous. That's why it is so protected and honored in the scriptures. And then Jesus says something quite provocative. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Does that strike anybody as being a little bit extreme? Jesus is intentionally extreme. He, he, it's not just an eye. He says your right eye, and in Bible times, the right side of the body was considered most honorable and most important. So your right eye is your best eye. And he does not say, if your eye leads you astray, you know, close your eyes. Or he doesn't say, put an eye patch over your eyes. He doesn't even say, gently remove your eye. What does he say? Gouge it out. And not just gouge it out, but gouge it out and throw it away. Because you might be tempted to keep it, you know, keep that eyeball in a jar somewhere and then reinsert it later. 
Yeah, what's he talking about? This, Jesus is not recommending self-mutilation. He is using here satire. He's using hyperbole to point out the false righteousness of the Pharisees. Right? The Pharisees thought that as long as you keep the letter of the law, that you were righteous. And they thought the problem was your eyes and your hands. So they made these rules. Women had to cover themselves with veils so men wouldn't have to look at them and be tempted. And, you know, there were early uh, monastic movements where men moved out all by themselves so they wouldn't have to see a woman worried about being thrown into sin. And Jesus says, if, if that's the way to righteousness, then why not go all the way? Just cut your hands off. Just gouge out your eyes. And you may know there were early Christians in the third century. Origen was a famous one, but not the only one, who actually had their, their sexual organs removed so that they could keep pure, right? Have those removed. Problem solved. No, no, no. Problem not solved because the problem is not your eyes or your hands or even your sexual organs. The problem is your heart. And Jesus was always drawing people back to their heart, to the transformation of their heart, a heart out of which goodness would just flow. Celebrate Recovery is a Christ-centered program that helps people get to the heart of the matter with their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. People learn to seek the transforming power of God, and I've asked a man in our church, Mark, to come and share his story as it relates to today's topic. So as you can imagine, this is a very courageous act that we are about to witness. So I'd like you to encourage Mark uh, as he comes to the platform. Good morning. Thanks, Scott. Everyone, I'm a grateful follower of Jesus Christ in recovery for issues of sexual integrity, most in the area of adult pornography. My name is Mark. Well, I was born in 1954 and am the oldest of three children. My childhood upbringing can best be described as rather normal and ordinary, and my parents treated us very well. It was early in my high school years when I first experienced the nighttime incident and was quite surprised. I felt confusion and initial fear and thought, what happened? It was after the confusion and the initial fear began to dissipate and leave that I thought about how good it felt. This was the beginning of my issues with sexual integrity. I eventually discovered adult magazines and later magazines that were even racier. You get the picture? I discovered that I lacked a high level of self-confidence about many things. I would realize later that I was a pretender, a poser, in college, I was also introduced to adult films, and later in life, the internet. Stimulus like this was a trigger for thoughts of things sexual. Since I accepted the Lord at the age of 27, I always knew about God's plan for salvation, and the foundational cornerstone is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But the only problem was, I kept getting in the way. I would still look at adult magazines on occasion, act out, have improper and lustful thoughts. This was the beginning, and this was happening, and I was a Christian. I was discouraged about what I was doing. 
and I was also bound by these sexual compulsions. But I always knew, however, that I had the strength to mind to stop this at any time. I could handle this, but of course I could not. So let's fast forward to January 2008. And it was on a cold, dark, blustery winter evening on Saturday, January 5th. I was in my driveway at home from 10.30 p.m. until 11.45. And I was truly overcome in a voice so clear in my head with the realization that my life was unmanageable. I awoke on Sunday morning, January 6th, and was not really sure that I would attend Sunday worship, but I did. It was the Sunday worship that was dedicated to celebrate recovery. Wow. Well, on Wednesday, January 9th, I attended my first meeting of the Celebrate Recovery Step Study. And it really was that first meeting. It was amazing to me that the first of the eight principles based on the Beatitudes is, realize I'm not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. And it's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. I came to that realization in my driveway. Well, Jesus said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come, let's talk this over, says the Lord, no matter how deep the stain of your sins. I can take it out and make it clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you white as wool. This verse, in particular, and others really spoke to my heart that God, in his time and divine healing, removes from me the shame and guilt that had imprisoned me and rendered me adrift in the sea of hopelessness. I am grateful to Celebrate Recovery and the impact that it has had on me during these past 12 years. Celebrate Recovery is my anchor and has helped me for, to forge positive friendships, have a sponsor, develop accountability partners, and seek to improve and be the man God wants me to be. I have God to thank that he has taken away my desire for anything in this area. After 40 years of being mired in the muck, and removed it. My journey of recovery has led me through God's blessing and his precious word, the Bible, Bible studies, readings, lectures, testimonies, fellowship, sermons and worship, this truth. The greatest need we all have is the forgiveness of sin. And God, in his love, calls and uses sinners for his ultimate purpose of salvation. I encourage anyone who is struggling with any of life's hurts, habits, hang-ups, compulsions, or addictive behaviors to know that Celebrate Recovery is a safe place where you will find support, love, and God's divine healing. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for your, your courage. I want to make two uh, tips in this area of life, and then, uh, and then we'll be finished. One's 
obvious and one's less obvious. And the obvious counsel is this. Make a commitment to honor God's standards in the area of sexuality. Whether you are married or single, male or female, young or not so young, getting this area of life right involves commitment, wisdom, and strength. There's a verse in the book of Job that sounds a little bit like what Jesus is talking about here, a lot like what Jesus is talking about, but it's from the Old Testament. Some of you know Job's story. And he said this, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. A covenant is an agreement, it's a promise, and the best covenants also have accountability worked in. Accountability is having someone in your life with whom you can share your struggles openly and without secrecy or hiddenness. And if you don't have somebody like that in your life, then ask God to bring somebody like that to you, someone you can trust. Part of the reason why groups are so important in our church is because we believe that's the best shot people have of forming a relationship with somebody where there can be trust and accountability. Celebrate Recovery provides a very focused type of accountability, and maybe that's what you want to seek out. If you're tempted by pornography, you can subscribe to an internet accountability software called Covenant Eyes. And the title comes right from this verse, Covenant Eyes. You choose an accountability partner or two, and your accountability partner gets each week a list of the websites that you have visited. And this changes things. This is not a filter or a blocker for the internet, though you can get those as well. This is about accountability, which is what everybody needs to break free. CovenantEyes.com, you can look at CovenantEyes.com. CovenantEyes.com is not just for people with internet addictions, it's for anybody with the internet. Lust promises freedom, right? You can gratify your appetites uh, as much as you want. Don't think too hard, just bite the lure. But friends, there is always a hook. There's always a trap. Lust promises freedom, but it will make you a slave. Real freedom is not the external freedom to gratify every appetite. It is the internal freedom not to be enslaved by my appetites. And the second line of counsel, and this, this may be less obvious, but it's this. Live a life of deep gratitude. Live a life of deep gratitude. Why do smart people keep getting hooked? Why do smart people fall for the same old dumb stuff? And I think we become most vulnerable to lust when we are dissatisfied with our life. We become most vulnerable when we are most dissatisfied because you and I were made by God for soul satisfaction. And if I do not find my soul satisfaction with God, it'll push me to find it elsewhere. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. Let me read that again. Failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. And sinful actions could be anything, but it would include uh, sexual temptation, also uh, the temptation towards judgment and gossip. Maybe you've reached an age where your sexual temptations are dissipating, but I talked with someone after the last service about this. It seems as we age, there are some temptations that dissipate, and there are some temptations that increase. 
I find myself more prone to anger, more prone to judgment. Failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. If I find a deeply satisfying life with God, I'm not out trying to, to, to meet my soul's sense of lack. There's a hunger inside every human that is deeper than the hunger of one body for another body. And it is the hunger to be known and loved. The hunger to be known and loved. Which is why we have to remember to put the teaching of Jesus in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, a, which is good news. If you hear in the Sermon on the Mount rules and regulations, you've misread the Sermon on the Mount, which is ultimately about good news and blessing. Right? Blessed are those. And blessed not only are those who society says is blessed, it's not just the supermodels, it's not just the rich and the famous. Jesus says, no, 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 blessed are the wrinkled, blessed are the mishappen, blessed are those that never got asked to prom, who never got asked to dance, blessed are the single and the married and the widowed and the divorced, blessed are the prostitutes, blessed are you who are addicted. Blessed are you who are regretful. Blessed are you who have been shamed. Blessed. Not because you get to have every appetite fulfilled. Blessed because you are not your appetites. You are so much more. Blessed are you because what you really hunger for is to be loved by and connected to God. And Jesus says, now that love and that connection, it's now available to you through me. And anybody can have it. You just kind of walk into this kingdom. You may have made bad choices. You may have violated your promises, betrayed your own values. You may have guilt or shame or regret. But listen, listen, blessed are you. Blessed are you because there is no hurt that God cannot heal. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. There is a safe and loving God. And receiving and healing and restoring is what our God does. Let's pray to him right now. God, you know every person listening to these words. You know every heart, every body, every story. You know the pain of those here who were violated by someone who should have cared and protected them. You know the feelings of defeat of those who wrestle with deeply ingrained habits or addictions. You know the emotional scars of those who know the sting of rejection or of not being chosen. You know about those who are facing temptation to cross a line or to point a finger. God, only you can heal and forgive. Would you do that for us now? Be for us the sure and steady anchor we need in the storms that surround us. This we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said.